Welcome to Technovation. I'm your host, Peter High. My guest today is Ralph Laura, the Chief Information Officer of Lumentum, a post he's held for roughly three years now. Lumentum manufactures optical and photonic products and earns roughly $1.7 billion in annual revenue. Ralph has been a CIO or CTO across companies that include Clorox, HP, and Rodan and Fields prior to his current post. He's an advisor to numerous Silicon Valley startups as well. Lastly, Ralph may well be the best connected chief information officer that I know. He has a remarkable ecosystem, and I look forward to hearing about how he's thought about curating it, among other topics we'll cover together. Ralph, welcome. It's great to speak with you as always. Uh, Thanks, Peter. Great to be uh, with you today and uh, looking forward to the conversation. Likewise, likewise. But first, a word from our partner, Transmit Security, and the company's co-founder and president, Rakesh Loonkar. Transmit Security is a cybersecurity organization that focuses on identity experience and is enabling a secure and passwordless future. They also recently received the highest Series A venture capital investment in history for a cybersecurity company at a valuation of $2.2 billion. Rakesh wanted to share a couple of recommendations for technology and digital executives on how to improve a company's cybersecurity infrastructure. Thank you so much, Peter. First, I strongly recommend to take part of their budget and dedicate it to really innovative companies. It has to be built into the budgets up front so that it serves as a forcing function to really look for new technologies. The the second recommendation is outside of identity. There are two very interesting classes of security technologies that are emerging. The first one is improving the quality of code to make sure that your developers are not introducing software vulnerabilities. The second is cloud security. I think we're in the first inning of hundreds of companies that will be created offering really innovative ways of securing the multitude of problems in the cloud environments. I just want to leave your audience with this last thing. Every single time they have to enter their password, change their password, can't remember their password or any other problems, please remember transmit security. And now on to the interview. Well, I gave a a brief introduction to Lumentum's business. And as a business-to-business organization, not everyone will be familiar with it who's listening. Can you take just a minute more and provide a bit more insight into uh, Lumentum's business, please? Sure. We are a a global organization, as you said, that manufactures, uh, designs and manufactures uh, technology in the photonics and optical component space. Um, We're global in nature. We have over 20 locations worldwide, uh, R&D centers around the world, manufacturing sites around the world. uh, And we create products largely that are used to help power the modern communication infrastructure uh, and to help map the world around us. So from our 3D sensors to our our optical components that, uh, that that make things like this conversation possible today. That's great. Thank you. And talk a little bit about, um, you know, the role of IT within your organization. This is not your first company. I mentioned HP, among others. You've worked at Cisco and, and, and other tech-centric organizations in the IT organization. So you're quite familiar with finding ways to differentiate and add value um, as an IT leader in a sea of engineers across the organization. But talk a little bit about uh, some of the areas where IT plays and areas of emphasis on your current strategic roadmap, please. Yeah, uh, so it's interesting to say we're a global company. Um, we're, uh, you know, the vast majority of our company are either engineers or uh, in the design and development sense of the term or in the manufacturing sense of the term. Uh, so we have a lot of people that build things, uh, that, that invent and build things. Um, so it's a kind of a unique set of challenges for IT. We, we enable them, of course, through the traditional tools like, like you know, video conferencing and uh, productivity tools and, you know, uh, uh, so on. But we also spend a, a, a very significant amount of our time 
really embedded with business owners, with the leaders in R&D, with the manufacturing leaders on understanding some of their unique challenges, their opportunities to where IT can help solve problems or accelerate value. Um, so we uh, employ a set of methodologies that really originated in the Toyota manufacturing system from the 70s and, 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 and uh, sort of back in the day. Now, so we use uh, concepts like Kaizen, um, uh, Hoshin, which are terms that allow us to make sure we're very, very tightly connected to the business. Uh, the Hoshin planning uh, uh, process, Hoshin kind planning process, allows us to make sure we're in lockstep from a strategic and a, a, a sort of goals perspective uh, with everything the business is trying to drive toward. And the Kaizen process is this continuous improvement uh, you know, model that allows us to really kind of wade through some of the uh, the difference between desires or, or, or demands and, hey, what, what are we trying to solve for? What's the outcome we're trying to generate? And then we partner together to build outcomes. So what that means is strategic priorities for me are things like uh, really spending a lot of time in the next two, three years on um, improving our, uh, our factory footprint from a technology perspective. So uh, we have an, an ongoing initiative to do um, an uplift of our manufacturing execution system to really provide differentiated capabilities uh, in terms of visualizing what's occurring on the factory floor, uh, being much closer to opportunity uh, uh, from a quality perspective, from a deliverable perspective and so on. Uh, a big initiative around data, like probably everybody else uh, who'd be interested in uh, this podcast. Uh, we, we uh, like many people, generate a huge volume of data. Uh, and the real challenge ends up being, how do I unpack that? How do I... Uh, use that to make better decisions. And, and increasingly, one of our challenges is how do I keep it fresh? How, how do I have my, my data as fresh as possible? So I'm making real decisions with real data versus sort of decisions based on last week's news. Um, of course, uh, we've got a number of initiatives around employee productivity, as anyone does in the post-pandemic era, uh, and, and continuing to improve on uh, how we interact with each other, how we uh, um, uh, collaborate with each other and how we stay connected uh, in a in a distributed world, and then and then um, you know like everybody uh, we have a number of initiatives around cyber, ensuring that uh, we're keeping uh, uh, the company protected, employees protected, customers protected in the wave after wave of, of new challenges and new uh, new threats in that world, uh, and then last but not least, uh, worrying about things like tech debt. Uh, th things like uh, you know ensuring that our value is aligned to the business, so I've, you know, the cost of IT is aligned to the value that's generated, and things like that. That's a great overview. Thank you for that, uh, Ralph. I, oh, I would love to peel back the onion on a couple of those. Um, you, you talked about data and the, the 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 fact that many companies are drowning in data. It's not a question of of having access to data. It's it's how do you harness it in order to to draw better insights from it. You talked about uh, among the things that you think about is how to keep it fresh and making sure that you are making decisions upon, you know, the, the up-to-date up to data as opposed to making decisions on out-of-date data. Um, talk about some of the other sort of guiding principles you think about as, uh, and that you apply in developing a data strategy. Yeah, so one of the challenges, so in an earlier, uh, earlier life uh, uh, in my role as CIO for Hewlett Packard Enterprise, we did some mapping, and at the time, um, we, we kind of shockingly discovered that over 70% of the processing time in our data, big data landscape was spent moving data around. 
And only 30% was actually, you know, for, uh, taking getting value from the data. Most of the time was making copies of it and processing it and moving it through the environment. Uh, and I think that's probably true of a lot of people. It's certainly, uh, I, I, we haven't done the analysis, but I think it's probably true at Lamentum as well. We spent a lot of time ingesting data, uh, you know, creating relationships among data, and then moving data through uh, uh, various uh, systems and uh, processing engines. Uh, to the degree I can stop doing that. So you know, using concepts like, um, uh, we've all heard of a data warehouse. We've all heard of a data lake. Um, well, if you put the two together, there's a, a concept people are talking about these days about a, a lake house, a sort of part data lake and part data warehouse. Um, and it's just got these days has a, a charming ring to it, right? We'd all like to spend time on a lake house. Um, <laughs> but, but the idea is some of data warehouses are really good at store, storing structured data, if you will. Data lakes are really good at storing unstructured data. Uh, and the idea is, hey, how do I get both? How do I how do I create the value of uh, of a data lake, and then I can access data quickly in an ad hoc manner without a whole lot of uh, pre thought and processing? Um, but marry that with uh, some of the long term value and the long term storage of a of a data warehouse. Uh, and there's some so a number of technology startups that have been doing work in that space, and we're working with a couple of them, uh, and it's having pretty good payoff uh, in that we're getting data that's more current, we're handling it less. Uh, and uh, it's um, it, it seems to be somewhat future-proof in that later when I have a different use for it than I have today, uh, I haven't kind of transformed the data in a way that lost some of the fidelity of, uh, of a system. No, that's a great, great overview as well. I, interesting in, in how you think about that and how you strive to get more value out of the data you're using as opposed to simply processing it, which is a really important point given the the, the, the vast quantities of data that so many organizations have. Um, I want to also talk about cybersecurity. You raised that as an area that is of, uh, of great importance, as it should be, of course, in any IT organization. And in many ways, it, it's a it's unfortunately a topic that continues to gain momentum and, and has uh, significant complexity that, that CIOs and CISOs and other, other executives need to make sure they're mindful of, even as they're taking risks associated with innovating. Um, talk a bit about your own orientation relative to that as the, you know, as, as the, the threats, um, unfortunately, are not becoming any less complex and, uh, and yet still having this need to continue to take calculated risks uh, while also being mindful of the consequences of that. How do, how do you think about that? Well, I think my, my own personal experience, uh, perspective, uh, and I think most of the industries has evolved over you know, my career, certainly. Originally, we, talk, we thought of cybersecurity in a defensive way. I'm going to build a strong wall and a moat, and I'm going to kind of gate people before they come into the company with VPN access and other things, and I'm going to keep the bad guys out. Right? And that was kind of the, the, the real goal was, hey, Let's never get breached. And I think we would, while we would all love a, a very strong external defense, and we all strive to not have uh, malicious actors in our environment, the reality is we have a fairly permeable uh, defense in most modern enterprises. Uh, we have email, which is a notoriously cyber-rich environment for people to, you know, phishing attacks and other things to sort of exploit. Um, we've got a plethora of mobile apps that people are using, APIs in the cloud and on-prem, uh, uh, passing data and interacting uh, files being kind of moved around through multiple platforms and devices, some of which IT manages, some of which we do. So, so we live in a kind of porous, porous membrane kind of world in a way that, that you just can't change. It'd be nice to kind of go back and put the lid back on the box, but that's not doable. So in that world, what do I do? Like, how do, how do I think about things differently? So now you have to think about it 
in terms of how, how quickly can I react? Uh, how quickly can I detect if someone is past that membrane? Um, can, how do I make sure that I'm, that if it's a, a minor uh, uh, breach, uh, I'm appropriate, I'm responding appropriately. And if it's a major breach, I'm re responding appropriately. Um, how do I contain, uh, we talk a bit about containing the blast radius. Right? So if someone does uh, gain access to, uh, inappropriately to a set of data, how do I make sure it's the smallest set of data possible? How do I make sure it's um, the fewest number of systems impacted? So I can isolate that, that, that damage portion and then, and then move on. Um, and then, you know, how do I, I take the, the, the largest, uh, the big, one of the biggest risks these days is the risk of ransomware. So how do I, in the event that I were breached, in the event that all my other safeguards and fail safes and all my other preparations had failed, how do I ensure that I don't end up uh, you know, kind of dead in the water or having some major, you know, uh, operational uh, or, or financial impact. So things like encrypting a lot of things, creating snapshots, a lot of things, uh, backing a lot of things up in, in the cloud or in other places versus in a, in a contiguous on-prem environment. Um, and, and, then, and then a lot of data isolation and segregation. So that again, if something does get breached or something does happen, it's not affecting the entire entirety of the enterprise, it's affecting small parts that I can then isolate and, and, and address. Yeah, that's interesting. Uh, you also mentioned you began uh, your overview of, of the strategic areas of focus for your organization and uh, spending time on improving how the factory footprint uh, and managing the factory footprint from a technology perspective. Talk a little bit about, more about what that entails, please, Ralph. Yeah, so so, so we have a, a number of, um, of uh, wafer fabs. So, so we make silicon chips. Uh, one of the challenges of the process from where you start with an epi wafer until you actually end up with a fully diced you know, chip ready to go in a customer, maybe weeks, and maybe nine, 10, 12 weeks. Um, well, boy, I'd really like to know what's happening you know, in step one or step two versus waiting until step 200 to find out you know, what, the, what my yield is gonna be, what my cost looks like, what, my, what the performance of those chips looks like in terms of power consumption or, or output and other things. So we have a, a number of things today that'll give, give us telemetry, that give us information coming out of that manufacturing process. Um, our, main, our MES systems aren't, don't always keep up. So um, we may not understand until, you know, step 12 of a process, we may have a place where we're measuring something, where an operator's interacting with something, and then we get information. Um, or it may be step 23 or, or whatnot. What I love is it's almost every step of a recipe to have um, uh, feedback as to what's working, what's not, uh, um, so I can measure, I can compare to other uh, runs we've done to look at anomalies and, and get better intel um, uh, and so on. And so uh, a much of our our approach around MES or manufacturing execution system replacement is refreshing that world to one that's essentially measuring everything. Uh, people talk about the Internet of Things or the Factory of the Future uh, or Factory 4.0. There's a number of terms in the industry, but our approach is again looking at outcomes, not necessarily following a model. Hey, how do I get better information in the hands of the factory manager, the R&D leader, and the sales team? Uh, so we know where we are in the process and we can take action earlier to ensure better quality, better efficiencies, uh, better outcomes. 
Ralph, for some time now, you, you've uh, been in the market to, for hiring great people across multiple organizations. You've seen the war for talent in, in a variety of different geographies and in a variety of different settings. Um, and there are some special case examples emerging now uh, as well. Uh, but but I'd, I'd love for you to sort of just assess, if you would, what some of the changing dynamics um, exist as you think about uh, talent uh, these days. It's interesting. Lots of people have talked in the past about the, the war for talent and particularly being in a tech-centric uh, geography where lots of people are competing for data scientists or coders or whatnot. Uh, it's been a topic uh, for some time. I think what's a bit different these days is, you know, again, post-pandemic, uh, the power has shifted in large part from the employer to determine and define the terms of employment and the employee gets to choose if they accept that or not and which company to go to. And now in many cases, employee, existing employees or prospective employees are def- demanding or defining new terms that they'd like to work under, uh, fully remote being one of them, or hybrid, or, or uh, hey, I want you to invest in my education, or I want different opportunities. Uh, uh, and so it's become an interesting uh, pivot, I would say, of power from the employer to the employee uh, in this space. And, uh, and, and we're all working in, uh, in remote environments as we completely... Uh, experience. Um, uh, so we have the flexibility to work somewhere else uh, without having to disrupt our family and our, our, our friends and our social networks and so on. So um, so one, I think the power has shifted and the uh, employees are sending setting uh, specific examples of what they're doing now. The second thing that's occurring is um, the you know, war for talent was ge- geography-based since it's no longer, no longer geography-based. Um, uh, people have uh, begun to focus a bit differently on what they're what they want out of a job and want out of a role. It used to be we would do performance reviews and say, "Okay, uh, where do you see yourself in three years?" And people would sit there and go, "I don't know," uh, like making more money and being promoted or whatever. Now, when you say, "Where do you see yourself in three years?" People have very specific answers. You know, I want I want to be here. I want to be, be here with my family. I want to be doing this in my career. I want to have the opportunity to do that, which I think is wonderful. People have started to be a bit introspective about what they what they want out of life and out of their job. But it's requiring employers and, and leaders to think really differently about the relationship they have with, with their employees and, and how they lead. Tell me, how, how do you, um, Ralph, how do you get past? So, so uh, uh, um, part of what you're saying is certainly the way in which they're thinking about their interactions with their bosses is different from the way you thought about your interactions with your bosses when you were a 20 something or a 30 something, for example. And how do you overcome the sort of thought process of, uh, you know, this is not how it was in my day. And, and uh, you know, the, the potential interpretation of that, of, of being entitlement in some way, how, how have you processed that and recognizing the differences between this generation and, and your generation, uh, you know, back when you were sort of rising in your career? Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I, I do hear it occasionally in, you know, uh, circles discussing talent, the sense of entitlement uh, coming up, uh, you know, kind of the whole back in our day, we walk, you know, uphill barefoot in the snow, you know, both, both ways to work, you know, they have it easy kind of thing. Um, and I guess my, my personal answer to that is you have to think, I mean, people are people and you have to get to know the person, the human being first, and you have to focus on the person. Um, and there's got to be a fit for that person and the work you're doing and so on. And so if you think of people as sort of interchangeable tools to achieve an outcome, 
then I think that, that like you are you're already we've already, you've already lost. Uh, but if you're thinking people and people in terms of people, what are their motivations? Where do they want to be? What what you know inspires them? Uh, then then I think you're I think you're on the right track, and this will all unfold appropriately. So I, I remember a, a mentor and an old friend, a dear friend, uh, Tom Mendoza. No, no. Uh, used to talk about, and they had five you know, sort of cultural elements they talked about. And one of them was this idea of uh, you know, kind of having people passionate about what they do and an optimistic attitude and some other things. Somebody once asked him, hey, what do you do with uh, like a non-motivated person? And, nah, nah. and he goes, well, I don't know what you do, but we, we, what I try to do is find them and fire them. <laughs> and people were a bit shocked with the answer. And he said, no, no. He goes, ah, what I'm saying is my job is to provide a, a compelling place to work, exciting environment, interesting uh, uh, you know, opportunity, the tools to succeed. It's your job to show up excited every day to go do that. And if you're not excited about doing what we're doing, what we've collectively elected to do, then like kind of like, I can't fix that. Like my, my job then is to get you out of the environment as fast as I can so that I can bring somebody else in that's just as excited as I am to go do the work we're doing. Um, and so so in a way, it's how do, you, how do I make sure I create an exciting, compelling, rewarding environment the tools to be successful and then go find the people that care about what I've built or am building and want to be part of the journey. That's a great, great answer. Certainly. I mentioned in the introduction, Ralph, that you you've worked in a number of different uh, big companies across a variety of different industries as well. And I'm sure it's given you reason to contemplate the commonalities and differences uh, company to company in terms of their, their use in harnessing digital as a, as a, um, set of concepts and ideas uh, to impact, uh, you know, the operation, the employee experience, the customer experience, the products and services, the companies develop and the like. Um, I, I wonder if it's a broad topic admittedly, and, and, uh, but, but I wonder if there may be some high level conclusions you might, uh, you might point to as you contemplate some of those commonalities and differences. Yeah. It's, I've had the, the, the good fortune to have a, a pretty broad set of experiences early in my career was at High tech companies in the telecom world, and then the data networking world, uh, and then I, I, uh, I made a pivot and spent some time in life sciences. Uh, so worked for a small pharmaceutical company. I got a very different appreciation of what digital means in that world, which is a lot about uh, compliance and quality and, and, and data adverse event reporting and a lot of a lot of gathering of data and then an analysis of data. Um, whereas earlier in the tech and manufacturing world, what data was important. Um, you know, a huge part of the focus of digital, if you will, in a B2B sales, uh, a B2B tech sales environment is about understanding the, the buyer's uh, choices and you know, getting uh, 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 telemetry on demand and demand planning and fulfillment and things versus uh, internal processes. So I get to live this sort of one set of data, uh, digital world and in a very different kind of focus of digital. And from there, I went to Clorox, a consumer, a large hundred year old, uh, consumer brands company where where historically the first hundred years of existence um, they lived in a, a decidedly analog world uh, selling through uh, retail channels uh, having people physically interact with their their product by picking on a up on a shelf and looking at the bottle and you know kind of turning it around and so on um, and then they had to pivot in the kind of late 2008 9 10 time frame to a world that became largely digital a lot more people are buying those products through digital channels like Amazon or Walmart.com or others, um, and so for them it was a very it was very much how do I take create a 
you know, a sort of digital twin of my product? And how do I help a consumer interact with that and get a sense of my brand and my product uh, in, a, in a different channel or a different way? Uh, while, of course, doing internal things uh, uh, to support that work. Uh, HP, kind of back to the tech world, uh, Rodana Fields, uh, an e-commerce company really built on a social platform uh, about uh, sharing stories and connecting people to people. Uh, so it was a, a really taking an analog world of relationships and multiplying it with a lot of digital assets to try to help, you know, kind of create the glue and the uh, excitement through that. And we did some really innovative things like create a, a, ver a video platform out in, out in, in, from scratch to drive engagement, a, a captive video platform to drive engagement in education and other things. Uh, so anyway, a long way to say, um, I think at the core, um, some of the internal focus are very similar, right? You know, a lot of how do I help digitize the inside of a company? Uh, that's pretty straightforward. And I think common a lot of, a lot of companies focus on the employee experience, looking at end-to-end -end processes, employee onboarding, employee offboarding. Uh, you know, those sort of things can be, you know, employee expense management. You know, digitizing those things are pretty common across any industry or any company. But really, I think being thoughtful about what is it our company does? Uh, how do we do it? Um, what are what are uh, value drivers or multipliers? And how how can I kind of find a little you know niche to put a pry bar of technology into to really help open up some of those value streams a bit differently? That's a great overview. I also mentioned at the outset that uh, one of the things I've always admired about you, Ralph, is this remarkable ecosystem that you have. You are very well connected. You're somebody who comes up often when I'm in discussions with a whole range of people in the broader tech landscape. You must know Ralph Laura, and I'm pleased I can say yes, of course. Uh, and, and I wonder how you've thought about that. Um, how have you... How have you gone about curating the ecosystem that you have? And, and maybe speak a little bit about the benefits you garner from, from being very uh, intentional in, in your methods there. Yeah, so very specifically, there was a particular point in time when I decided, hey, I should be more, have a better network. And in the, at the time, networking had a kind of pejorative term. So there was like self, you know, benefiting kind of exercise to go kind of find people to, to, to help you with something. Uh, so I, I'd never looked at networking as a positive. It was sort of like a, you know, you know, kind of used car salesman sort of behavior of like, you know, false uh, engagement. Uh, but the, the, the point in time was it was 2006. Um, I was CIO at Symbol Technologies. And uh, after a very long internal transition and growth, we sold the company to Motorola. And as part of that, I found myself uh, after a, a heads, heads down, you know, 80 hour week kind of role, uh, really internally focused, but popping my head up and going, oh, it's time to go find another role. And I realized, gee, I hadn't talked to anybody in probably three years, the three years we've been doing this internal transition and turnaround. Um, and so I, I, nobody knew what I had done and where I was and what was going on. And, and it's, I, I, I had to spend several months sort of networking and catching up and connecting with people uh, from a position where I did need something, I, I, looking for another opportunity. And I realized then, I said, you know, um, one, uh, most of those conversations turned into, wow, had I only known you back when I was in the middle of this transition, like that, it would have been so much more helpful, or I could have been helpful to you. We just lived through the same experience. We could have saved each other a lot of time and torment. And so I, I made it kind of a, a pact with myself that I would, no matter how busy I was, no matter how internally focused I was, that I would always spend time uh, connecting with my peers sharing what we were doing, uh, understanding what they were doing, and trying to help. Um, 
And so uh, when I was in Long Island uh, uh, with Symbol, I started a CIO uh, networking group where we met all the CIOs on the island that I could kind of put together. We met once a month for dinner and kind of shared stories. Uh, later, when I moved to uh, the Phoenix market and worked uh, at a pharmaceutical company called Medicis, I created one of the first CIO groups in the Phoenix area where we got together for breakfast and would, would socialize and share the same sort of things. Um, and then back in the Bay Area with Clorox, uh, I was actually um, chair of the uh, San Francisco-based group, uh, CIO group for a number of years. Uh, um, that uh, There are three different long-running groups. I, and I, I connected with one of those groups. I chaired the uh, one in the city. I was very active in the South Bay and East Bay uh, groups. And then with members of a few others. Uh, and I just found connecting with peers, spending time with peers, really valuable. The, the role of the CIO is both, um, you, a lot of, you get a lot of attention and visibility because of the nature of you, what you're doing in the company, but it's a bit of a lonely, lonely job in that, uh, in fact, I had a, a conversation with this one, one C, CEO of mine uh, in my career where he said, uh, hey, you know, we've been talking to the, to the, uh, about succession planning and, uh, We've been talking to the board, and the board's really concerned about your role uh, not having a successor. And I said, "Well, you know, none of the other roles in the company truly do. We're all you know, fairly thinly staffed." And his comment was, "Yeah, but we all like we have four BU leaders. Like, if one of them left, one of the other BU leaders could take over a BU. Like, you know, we have a head of strategy could probably take over from the CFO, or vice versa if one of them left. Like, nobody else in the company knows how to do your job, <laughs> which was I realized was, was fairly true." And so it's like, it's a lonely job in a way. And so to get perspective, to share ideas, to get validation, or frankly, a lot of times to get someone who'll tell you, tell you, hey, I, I, it doesn't sound like that's working for you. <laughs> like to have that kind of conversation, you know, requires kind of going outside and building relationships that, of people you trust, where you can have that kind of candid feedback and candid relationship. You also have a uh, part of your ecosystem and, and, and facilitated, uh, no doubt, by being in the milieu for more than a decade now of Silicon Valley, uh, uh, of the startup communities, venture-backed organizations. You serve on the advisory boards of numerous uh, companies uh, in that space as well. And it gives you kind of a beat on trends. You're somebody who who's uh, always thinking about the art of the possible and its application back into the company you're a part of, in this case, Lumentum, of course. Um, talk a bit about some of what your latest thinking is relative to trends and, and things you're getting excited about as you, you know, continue to, to mine the relationships in Silicon Valley and the startup community and just uh, you know, working with your team on, on uh, what the future might hold for your organization. It's interesting. Um, so yeah, as part of that networking, I guess, I've also really sought out uh, uh, venture capital companies. So I've been a CIO you know, advisor to a number of VC uh, firms, as well as uh, getting in involved in a more granular level uh, advising startups, uh, specific startups. Because I find the passion there, some of the thinking there, and then uh, you know, getting grounded in the reality of what they're trying to accomplish, really kind of rewarding. Um, and I do strike a balance between, I've also been on the um, executive councils of you know large uh, platform companies that are mature tech companies like over time NetApp and SAP and Oracle and others where I've been uh, involved in a larger company uh, from a customer advisor kind of perspective. Um, so I think as I, as I look at the technology landscape today, um, People have been talking about things like AI and ML for a while, machine learning and, and artificial intelligence. And, and they used to talk about in terms of, oh, you know, where, you know what, what are you doing with AI and ML? And 
Uh, is that changing this or affecting that as an end unto itself? And I think people are realizing to talk about AI and ML, it's like talking about, are you using servers in your environment? Um, uh, it, it's, a, it's a tool and it's becoming a ubiquitous tool in almost every aspect of what we're doing. So I think the, th the interesting startups or interesting technology plays in that space AI and ML are people that have a very uh, specific point of view and a problem domain that they really they really understand and have found, okay, now I've got the domain knowledge that's necessary. I've got a point of view about how this domain is not functioning efficiently. And now I've got this unique new tool that instead of going and hiring a bunch of people and coding a bunch of things and trying to chip away at the, you know, the, the, the rock face for years, I can deploy these really interesting new tools that allow me to scale more quickly, uh, make more progress and, 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 um, and become more interesting as a scale platform much, much more fat, uh, quickly. Uh, and so I, I've, I've um, recently met with uh, CEOs of a couple of uh, AI and ML powered companies that are focusing on different problem domains where I think they're probably, their time to market is probably, you know, halved if not a third of what it would have been had they not had those tools to apply. Uh, uh, I think the spaces people are going after today are kind of different. It used to be, hey, you, you wanted to become a national, a, a global player, you wanted to build a platform. The, the big mantra of the last decade or two of tech investment was, hey, are you gonna be a new platform or are you just an application? Um, and, uh, and I think more and more people are realizing there are spaces to play in verticals that are really unserved because we've been have this horizontal platform focus. So some of the vertical areas I think that are unserved are things like the manufacturing floor. The factory floor, there are precious few systems at scale that really have attacked that environment. And there are a couple of interesting players in there that are looking at that differently and applying, bringing in industry people with lots of experience to go tackle that problem. Uh, I know a number of uh, good friends of mine who are uh, um, in the restaurant and hospitality business as CIOs. Uh, and boy, what an interesting year and a half for them. Uh, so they're applying new technologies to solve really specific problems in the, in the food service space or the restaurant retail space. It's really, it's really, I think, potentially be game changing. So I don't think, I at least don't see a lot of um, you know, the next Salesforce or the next Workday or something in the horizon, what I see is some really interesting players solving specific problems in vertical industries and in, in specific spaces. Um, they, they may evolve into something bigger, but their core focus is, you know, is in that space. Um, so to summarize, I think, uh, you know, MLAI is really interesting. I think uh, sensor networks are interesting. So this, as I said, the data coming off of things and then processing, doing something with that. There'll be a ton of, uh, there are a ton of new pro approaches in the cyberspace, just like there are a ton of new threats in the cyberspace. That seems to be a dance we'll be doing for quite some time. So staying abreast of a lot of the new changes there and a lot of what people are bringing to the table is really interesting. And then if I had to make a, a, a non-technology or non-enterprise kind of bet, I'm a big believer in uh, um, the, the, the autonomous revolution that's occurring. I think autonomous driving, uh, uh, is, is a piece of it, but there's a lot of, uh, you know, increasing, we're, see, we're seeing the, the true reality of household robots and household appliances and, house, and things that have become made more autonomous um, based on technology being uh, mature at scale and affordable uh, to apply in a number of those spaces. And that will be really interesting over the next, uh, the next five years or so.
That's very interesting. I also want to just quickly probe as you, as I think across the various parts of your strategy, there are a number of areas there, and you've even begun to uh, um, uh, incorporate in how you've you've had used the thinking or solutions of startups to help uh, enrich some of your thought process around those strategies, around you know date, the use of data, around cyber. I would presume also around the elimination of technical debt, perhaps in establishing new standards uh, uh, as well. To, to what extent, when you are developing your own technology or digital strategy, are, are you leavening what you are learning in the VC community to, to educate yourself as to how quickly and in what direction you might move relative to some of these topics? Yeah, so one of our board members and I, we had a board meeting this morning and uh, in, in the video conference window, he private messaged me and I was talking about data visualization, a particular tool we're using. And he said, hey, now that you know uh, um, a large player had acquired them, do you should look, you know, what's your next move in case something happens and that becomes untenable? Um, and so I said, no, you know, we're, we're watching this all the time. Uh, so we're looking at the evolution of that space, data visualization, data processing, uh, the consumerization of data kind of stuff, uh, democratization of data. Who are the big players? Uh, who are the, maybe not the big players, but the players with a really interesting twist. Uh, and then some of this is, um, you know, it's like it's, it's akin to farming. Like you're out there, you've planted a bunch of crops and you're kind of waiting to see what comes ripe at the right time. Uh, so, so it's sort of the farm to table moment from a technology perspective. Hey, what's ripe this week that we're going to apply to solve the problems we have this week? Um, so we stay really well connected, I think, to a, a, the startup ecosystem, both for ideas, but also to see, hey, when is it time uh, to, to make a move or make a change? Uh, uh, and it, because, you know, these things have large switching costs. Uh, I've got retraining to do. I've got a bunch of things to do if I'm going to bring in a new technology at scale. Um, so, you know, understanding when you think it's time uh, and and then not only when do you think it's time, but predicting that. Because I have to go to the board and my executive committee and say, hey, you know, three years from now, uh, I'm going to have a large capital expense and let's start planning for that. Uh, we're going to have a, you know, a transition cost and some other things. So uh, trying to forecast uh, when what, when, and how that happens is something we spend a decent amount of time on. That's great. Well, Ralph, Laura, um, thank you so much for joining me on Technovation today. There are a few people that have, that have as much breadth of experience as a chief information or technology officer as you have. And it's it's wonderful, as always, to learn from you uh, the lessons from across that breadth of experiences, as well as projecting forward what you see uh, the future potentially holding, generally speaking, from Lumentum more specifically. Um, as, as always, it's been a great conversation. Thank you. Oh, thank you, Peter. Always great catching up with you.